Welcome to the first episode of The Myths That Make Us since I have taken a long hiatus because I went and I drank ayahuasca in the jungle. And the reason I waited to post a podcast is because I thought that I was going to write a really long trip report and then record it as a podcast, which normally takes like 30 to 40 hours. But a couple of days after being back, uh, one of my best friends, Aubrey Marcus, basically asked me if I wanted to join his company as COO slash CEO, and I did not see that coming at all. And so I said yes, and now your boy hasn't really had the time to turn his experience into a whole-ass podcast, and so it might never actually end up becoming an entire podcast, but maybe one day. But um, my life is about to radically change. Uh, the podcast might change because of it. I know that Graham is going to help me do what I can, and we might be doing more single, or like single solo casts where it's me talking at length about something that I'm interested in. But since coming up with that idea, I've had three incredible podcasts. I'm like, I don't know if I can give up this magic and I'll just have to figure out how to weave a full-time job on top of the full-time job I already had being a coach for Fit for Service while also maintaining a podcast. Graham, please help me. He is snickering off in the background because uh, we'll figure it out. But with all that preamble, today's episode is with my boy, Will Reason. Like, what an epic last name to have as Reason. Like, how could you possibly not be clear and logical and reasonable? You know what I'm saying? Anyways, um, he is one of the like leading experts in the Austin area. At least when I talk to people about trauma and people tell me who they trained under or who has been a significant influence in their life, Will's name comes up again and again. He hosts a training program three times a year called Trauma and Somatics. And the next time it's going to be open is going to be in January. So if you really resonated, if you reason willinated, no, that was terrible. If you resonated with that, uh, thank you, Graham. You're really saving my life today. Um, if you resonate with what he shares and you do something in the healing modalities where trauma might come up. He is one of the most clear and lucid lights on trauma that I've met. There were actually a couple of moments on this podcast where he in real time actually updated a part of my understanding of trauma that was actually previously wrong. And that's a magical moment for me on a podcast. And so we deep dive in what is trauma? How does it function? How is it playing out in our culture? and what is the way to move with it in a way where you don't deepen it, but you can be deepened by it, if you know what I'm saying? Um, if you want to support this podcast, you know the deal. And if you're a new timer, uh, you might not know the deal. And I'll, Either way, I'm going to tell you what it is. But the first one is you can sign up for my newsletter at ericgazzi.com. Um, you can also share this with someone that you think it might help. And also, you know, commenting and reviewing on iTunes. But I think that that's going to die soon because there's other things like Spotify and such that are growing. And, you know, the destiny of every company, once it gets big enough, is it dies. I guess the destiny of everything is, is that it dies except for eternity, which continuously births new things for it to die. And now I don't really know what the truth is. But I really appreciate y'all's time. I love y'all so much. And life is about to get super super yummy and also busy but we're gonna do the best we can to keep bringing you episodes
Love, love. Will, thank you for coming on the podcast again. Uh, the first time we talked, I put you through the uh, structure that I tend to do for first-time guests, and we really got into your story. But you were someone that we both knew there wanted to be a second conversation that went much deeper into the area that you and I are both super passionate in that we didn't get a chance to get into, which is trauma. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we did another podcast mm-hmm. and I want to welcome you back and wherever you feel to start the thread, I pass the floor to you, brother, and <laughs> we're going to grok. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Eric. I think this, uh, each time we connect, there's this um, fire between the two of us of this excitement that we have and the passion that we have for studying human beings. And each time we get into these deep talks, you're like, oh, we gotta get, we gotta get that recorded, man. Yeah. <laughs> so here we are to to really dive into that. Um, if I'm gonna set the stage for today, I think the way I'll set it is this: um, today's conversation is gonna point us towards what I see as an undeniable truth about the biggest problem that we as a species face right now that we ever have faced. And it's the thing, the one thing that prevents us from living a life of freedom and having what the mystics point to, which is that sense of presence and wonder living in the moment. Um, And in my, my opinion, trauma well, not specifically trauma, but what causes trauma is the root of all suffering on our planet. It's the thing that prevents us from growing and evolving and really enjoying the bliss that is life. And And so what would you say is trauma to begin to anchor people and then we'll yeah. get into what causes it. Cause I love that you make a distinction there. Yeah. Trauma is the lingering response to a series of events. It's the living memory of something that was too much for our, our biology, our, our body to process or our mind. Yeah. The One mind. of the things that I've been most um, interested by and that I find is one of the most important things to share with people about trauma is that it is a at root biologically adaptive mechanism yeah. that uh, activates not because you are broken, that's right, not because something is wrong with you, but because something is right with you and did exactly what was needed in the moment. Yeah. And there are specific reasons that humans can get stuck in that cycle, but that the initial reaction to whatever the too much Mm -hmm. situation was, was completely adaptive in the moment and it saved your life. That's right. And you're not broken or fucked up because of it. It's yep. It's an intelligent response to something that was overwhelming and it's absolutely imperative that we have these responses and the lingering memory of it rather than an intelli- rather than a um, functional a- adaptation, right? Dysfunction versus function, right? Something that causes disharmony in the organism versus harmony in the organism. The lingering of that, the, what we call trauma, is a result of our process of domestication. Mm. 
It's a result of the process of how we train ourselves to be. And it's permeated every facet of human existence, culture, religion, politics, uh, society, family structures, all of it. And now we have thousands of years of embedded intelligent adaptive responses and memory. It's just a part of the structure of, of our organism. And we can see this in the animal kingdom. The only animals that exhibit the signs of trauma, the lingering psychosomatic response, are those animals that are domesticated. Yep. The process of domestication teaches us to inhibit our in most natural responses to certain situations. And this is the key. This is the key. Yep. You inhibit in an effort. Yeah, yep. On. In an effort to remain socially connected, right? Because we're social creatures. But that the very nature of that causes the thing that creates pain and suffering for us. Like, there's some really powerful videos online. Uh, one famous one is a gazelle that gets caught yeah. by a lion and Peter mm -hmm. Levine is speaking over it and you can find it on YouTube. And uh, the animal goes through the freeze response. The gazelle goes through the freeze response and then somehow the lion gets distracted. The gazelle gets away and then the gazelle tremors. That's right. Moves the energy out and <clears throat> goes bouncing along. Yep. That's the full completion that's of right. the trauma cycle. The other video that's famous that's really incredible is a polar bear yeah. that's being tracked down by biologists in a helicopter mm -hmm. who are seeking to sedate it, to tag it, because they're right. trying to do certain research. And Peter Levine is speaking over that one too. And mm -hmm. Peter Levine is one of the OGs in this space. Mm -hmm. Shout out, Peter. Thank you for your work. Um, and that the polar bear is running, gets immobilized. It's, it's a externally created freeze response, right. but still initiates that biological pattern. Yep. And then the moment the bear comes back to, it starts to take really deep breaths yep. that then lead to tremors. And then once the tremors go through, it can go back along what it's doing. If you watch that video, what's really interesting about that is that when the bear begins to come out of its sedated state, its legs are moving again. Exactly, exactly the way it was when it was incapacitated or immobilized. Yep. This is the same thing that happens inside our biology yep. when we're in car accidents and if we're ultra stressed or emotionally heightened states when we go into surgery. Yes. Right? Yes. And the body is frozen, immobilized, but those stress responses are still happening. It's like the program is still running. That's it's right. not complete. The programming's still running, right? Exactly. And so when the body comes out of that frozen state or the immobilization, depending on, on which happens, the system still has the program running that needs to complete what it's doing. Now that can happen in the moment or we can force it to inhibit. So, and it's really interesting because paramedics will give um, accident survivors on the scene paralytics or yep. things that will subdue the tremoring responses and that will prevent the the shock response and what happens is the individual now lives with the lingering yes. memory and it's the motor memory it's the the act the active memory of the 100%. body the, the body's motoric movements like the need for processing the the movements of it and then it becomes stored inside the the, the tissue one of the most common places that trauma happens is when people in a heightened state or shock move into classical Western medicine, 
either through surgery or through the first responders response. It's not malicious. Yep. It's a misunderstanding of what's going on. Yep. And that if you are not trained or retaught or really untaught. Mm-hmm. and That's right. It really is an unlearning right. process. That um, you now have created this open loop in your nervous system where there's a part of you that feels like it is still in the moment mm-hmm. right before you were immobilized. Mm-hmm. My understanding is that that will create a chronic condition. It can. It can. It doesn't always, but it can. It can lead to chronic conditions. It can lead. So the interesting thing with the stress physiology is there's a there's not one size fits all, right? So it's it's situation dependent. It's biology dependent, right? So your body and my body are totally different. So there's a different history. There's a different program running. There's a different adaptive cycle that's going to happen. So we're going to respond differently to stressful situations. And there's a similar constellation of symptoms that can show up. Early developmental trauma, for instance, right? If something happens during the early development of the organism, what it, it, it usually looks like chronic health conditions. It could look like digestive problems that are lingering, it could look like muscle spasms, headaches, migraines. It could look like all sorts of different things that are reoccurring seemingly um, sometimes even innocuous symptoms, right? Like just having a, a pain in one area of the body or our body forms in a certain shape that is the adaptive response to that lingering stress. Or it could look like things that we've labeled as ADD or ADHD. It could look like things that we've labeled as bipolar. And bipolar is really just a, a, a rapid movement between nervous system states where the system right. really can't um, regulate itself. It's, it's, you know, it, it's like a person that got hit by a shock and they're jumping up into their sympathetic system and then their system doesn't know how to regulate. So it hits back down into the parasympathetic. So then I'm frozen. Now I'm activated. Now I'm frozen. Now I'm activated. I'm frozen. I'm activated. Right. And it just keeps going on. And that for our psychology, the mind, the the thoughts emerge from the state of the body. Yeah. So the body's like this. Yeah. A lot of people, even in classical psychology, um, you know, the quote unquote intellectuals, they don't resonate with that, but the research really bears that out. Yep, that it does your physiological state is so is massively the momentum creator for what type of thoughts that you have. And the reason getting into trauma last year for me as a researcher was one of the most humbling moments of my intellectual life is because I realized that everything that I was expounding about psychology and what helps people wasn't, it wasn't that it was wrong. It's that if not taken into account, something else is wrong. And that for 10 years, I was the CBT guy. Mm -hmm. I was the, just change your stories. Mm -hmm. All you got to do is journal. It was right there with you, man. And what I realized was that was a function of my luck of having a nervous system where that worked Mm -hmm. because there wasn't a powerful disruption from a specific type of intensity of trauma. That's right. And that what I learned from studying trauma is that if your animal body is still stuck or frozen in a moment in the past that was incredibly overwhelming, trying to heal that through CBT, which is cognitive behavioral Mm -hmm. therapy, which is all mental and language mm-hmm. base or store or changing your stories mm-hmm. um 
It just doesn't work. It doesn't work. And it's part of an equation, right? So it's like a piece of the whole that's important. It's that, and it's not always that the thing is cycling continuously, the memory either, right? So it's like, I begin to get into a conversation about some sort of topic. And next thing you know, I'm reliving, my body's reliving the experience. The moment that my body becomes overwhelmed, thought processing ceases because blood flow is diverted from the prefrontal cortex to the limbic system, which activates my primal response to threat intelligently to protect me from the threat. Right. But what's happening is I'm, I'm being primed to be protected from a threat that's no longer present. But my body doesn't know the difference. It doesn't differentiate time and space. It's the thinking mind that does that, right? So when we're, when we're attempting to help somebody process or make sense of something that's really complex or really difficult or really hard experience, the processing, the mental processing part's essential for us to, to integrate it. For sure. And it can only happen when our, when our body isn't too activated right. to be with that, which is where which is that subtle nuance, the important subtle nuance for modern practitioners to learn, right? Because just, just like what you were saying, you know, for years I was doing more harm than good. I was taking people back into the memories of their, of their difficulties. I was getting them to cathartically reprocess these things. Like I took a, I took a client into an experience inside themselves by following their experience into their body even that was so intense that they felt like they were having an ayahuasca ceremony. They left, we were doing this through Zoom and they left the camera for a moment and they went and threw up. Like their physiology was that overwhelmed. I thought I was doing them a favor. For three months, this person, after that one particular conversation, for three months, their system was so dysregulated that they could hardly work. They were like, they, it was like they were stuck in an ayahuasca ceremony that was perpetually ongoing. They had thoughts of self-harm. That's the impact that can come from us fucking around yeah. with the human physiology and not knowing what we're doing. And I didn't know. I was proud of it. Like if I scroll back on my Facebook timeline to, I think it was like 2016 or whatever, 2017, I was proud of it. I was sharing about it. I was talking about it. I was using that to market what I was doing. Because I thought it was the right thing, but it's not. It's so detrimental to the organism, right? There's a human being. And when they become that dysregulated, there's, it's, they're re-traumatized. It doesn't help. And so there were many touch points to offer support yeah. to that individual. And then there were also like an encouragement to go and find the necessary support because they were on the other side of the world. I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't be around them. I really appreciate you articulating that. That's... Uh, incredibly vulnerable and also mm. potent and powerful. And it feels like one of the things that I want to ask to kind of like anchor this for people listening is that the, like we've evolved to understand things almost as like games. And the reason we've, why games are so popular is because they reflect on one level how our cognition functions. And mm -hmm. in the metaphor of a game, the fundamental player in understanding trauma is the physiology of your individual nervous system. That's right. Like that's the unit, that's the player that this is moving through. 
the environment is a in the video game is a combination of all the structures you articulated that are trying to repress. Yeah. And also it's the place where an overwhelming situation can happen. So yeah. there's monsters yeah. there. Yeah. <clears throat> and that um, we seem to be talking about a specific type of trauma, which they would call either acute PTSD or mm-hmm. classical PTSD. Um, there's also complex PTSD that I want to put a flag in for people. And in my um, exploration in this research, something that came up for me as a third type that I would call like story trauma Mm. that has nothing to do with the physiology, but that if something changes in your story about yourself or your life radically enough, it can function as a type of trauma. And the example that I offered in the podcast I did, what is trauma is if you're married to someone for 18 years and then you come home one day and they're gone and they left a note and they in the note say that they've been with someone else for the last 10 years and that they're gone and they're taking the children or whatever it is, mm-hmm. your past has just transformed. Mm-hmm. Your future has just transformed. Who you believe you are has just transformed and you don't understand who you will become. Yep. And um, Perception creates reality and reality creates perception, right? Both are true. Yeah. The thoughts I think influence my body to respond in a certain way, and my body influences my thoughts to emerge in a certain way. And you're pointing to that perfectly. Yeah. And so I just wanted to share or to like set the stage of the, at least the three types of trauma that I'm aware of Mm -hmm. the um, acute PTSD, which is, and we can get more deeply into that, but that's kind of what it feels like we've been touching on. Complex PTSD, I would love to hear you explore, but that's kind of the chronic repression of mm-hmm. the structures that you articulated. Um, do those three make sense for you? Do you mm-hmm. think that there's something that's being missed? And then I would also incorporate um, early developmental, mm-hmm. pre and perinatal, and then epigenetic. So uh, lineage, historical. So what's interesting is that we are so complex as an organism, we're barely even scratching the this, this surface of understanding. It's, from what I understand, what we can measure is the impact from seven generations. Um, look to Mark Wallen's work. Um, he does family constellation stuff, but he's also done some research around the impact of the genetic imprint. I've worked with a number of descendants of Holocaust survivors and it's really interesting to see a very unique signature in the constellation of symptoms that they live with. Um, a lot of that is a result of the imprint, the preparatory responses, and an intelligent adapt, like an adaptation to a situation that was really hard. And so a quick pause here. I feel a thing coming up is that Acute PTSD is something that we've understand discreetly enough where like we can really point at it with almost a scientific level of precision. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's this thing called complex PTSD, which actually feels like a placeholder for our ignorance of maybe four or five different types. And you articulated three of those types. Like in the same way that schizophrenia is this term that we use that is more a admittance of our lack of understanding of the discrete subcategories and we've Mm -hmm. created one that really is representing what could be a whole cloud of different disorders Mm 
Mm-hmm. Same thing with ADHD. There's yeah. a great book called ADHD Isn't Real, and it's uh, written by a doctor that specializes in treating ADHD. And yep. his argument is that ADHD is a term that we use to represent a non-precise understanding of 11 different type of things that could be going yeah. wrong. And that he offers tests in the book to help see which of these 11 things Mm -hmm. might be your roots. And that if you treat those roots, the ADHD symptomology goes Mm -hmm. away. I love that. I mean, from a physiology perspective, most of it's just a lack of regulatory process, the capacity in the system. And we can address it in, in the body. And once that regulatory process adjusts, the thoughts change, the behavior changes. It's fascinating. Even hormone balances change. It's, it's wild. And hormone balance affects the way we think. Like all of it's inter- so beautifully interconnected. Yeah. So yes, back to these different categories. There are these, these many different categories. of, And when the thing occurs, how long it occurs, the frequency of the experience, mm-hmm. all of those things have an impact on the way that the organism develops across time. So we can have one significant event but we can have a series of really small events that occur consistently for a period a period of time. That's the, that's also trauma. And to anchor that specifically for people, it would be like if over the course of three or four years, uh, the feedback you got from your father was don't ever cry. Sure, yep. Yep, don't cry all the way from something as simple as, as that kind of cueing all the way to, um, you know, being ignored by your parents, having a, a parent that was, you know, abusing drugs or alcohol, having parents that fought really intensely, but it wasn't taken out on, on the child ever, right? Living with very little means, very little money across time, living in a culture that um, doesn't accept the way that you look, right? All of these things have cumulative and progressive impact across time. When that impact takes place, the organism adapts right. or creates strategies for managing the stress. And it really is that level of stress that causes a breakdown or, or has an impact that's often negative on the system. Or we could say, rather than saying negative on the system, we could say it's it. It's um, it impedes the system's ability to function what we would consider normally. Yeah, the metaphor that comes to mind is for the system of the individual physiology and nervous system, um, an ecosystem. Like moving away from the machine model that a lot of modern science uses to represent the human organism to reconnecting back to like, what are the thing, what's the thing that we have arisen out of and it's ecosystems. Mm -hmm. And the really beautiful thing about an ecosystem is that it's not causal. It's not a plus B equals C. It's all of these things are um, in a beautiful balance with each other that when those, when there's coherence, the natural function of a coherent ecosystem is growth. Yeah, exactly. And that the natural function of a out-of-balance ecosystem is it can no longer produce the functions of growth. That's right. We and and a good example is we we live in cultures that often orient to our coming into existence as though we were created. 
as opposed to orienting to ourselves as an organism that grows out of something. And if we think about ourselves as an organism, just like a tree or a plant that grows out of the environment it comes from, when we think about it that way, we can take into, the, into account all of the environmental factors, environment also being psychology as a piece of it, but every last bit of, of environment is a part of what forms the organism. Right. And then across time, every last thing, every, every little bit of stimulation from the environment helps to shape the organism and form it. Right? So the body structure, the thought structure, the responses to things, every last detail of that organism is a, is a result of the way it grows in relationship with its environment. And if you even go into the language of inform, information yes. brings into form. Exactly. Yep. Right. And, and there's, a, there's a man that I extensively study, um, Stanley Kellerman, and his work is all about the way that we form. Did you know that when the zygote goes through the, the process, of, like the embryo goes through the process of forming, if you really look at it, it takes on the shape of all of the animals that came before. Right, in our phylogenetic evolutionary exactly. history, yeah. So all of these things exist in our, genetics, in our genetic structure, it's whether turning on or turning off. And our system selects what to trigger turning on and turning off based on environmental factors. Environment is also emotional, right? Environment is what did mom feel when mom found out she was carrying me? What did mom feel in relationship to dad or to partner while carrying me? What did mom eat? What was the, the tone of the environment politically, culturally, familially? Like all of these things are factors in the way that the organism develops and grows. They're not thinking factors, right? But they're the building blocks of what forms the container for the thought to emerge, which and shapes the thought. To take this into a little different direction, but I feel it's in complete coherence. It's just looking at it from a different perspective. Anyone or all of us, if we can get to a point of stillness and psychedelics can really help, but you can get there without psychedelics, there's this felt sense of like the personality or the flavor or the disposition of God or yeah. the universe or the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And that it feels like it has a personality quality to it. And when I really feel into when you're in the womb, the mother's body, I think is to the, embryo what our consciousness feels like to god i mean god is to us what mom is to fetus right yeah the, the personality vibe mm -hmm. and so like if you were celebrated and wanted yeah it creates an atmosphere in the body that's pre-linguistic that's right well there's a physiological cascade that occurs in the body right so there's, there's an absence of stress hormones and there's an activity of you know, positive hormones and chemical releases in the body, which it, it informs the formation of the organism, right? And when that's not there, that also informs the way that the organism adjusts itself to be prepared for the environment. 
there's um, you can do some reading about the Dutch hunger winter, right? Children yeah. that were born during that time, their sh- the shape of their body was very different. They're ex- they expected there to be a famine, a famine, and they came out and they just held weight. Why? Because the organism expected there to not be any food, so it stored the food in preparation. My mother didn't eat a lot when I was a child. She was, uh, I don't know if you'd call it anorexic, but there was, there was her relationship with food was complicated. My, my body tends to carry weight, and it has most of my life. It's an intelligent response for it to do that. Now, I can train it to behave differently through practice and repetition right. and reminding it through cues. But there's the intelligence behind this, right? None of this is bad. It's simply a way that we grow. Put a tree in a pot in a house, the tree will grow to the size of the environment. Put a shark in a tank, the shark will grow to the size of the tank. You put it in the ocean and it gets fucking massive. And you put a tree in a forest and it grows exponentially. It just won't, it doesn't really necessarily stop unless some environmental factor stops it. Human beings are relatively similar in that way. We're organic matter that grows in relationship to environmental stimulus. Yeah. Yeah. So if you feel into the people listening, we've uh, kind of have had our intellectual fun on trying to like map the landscape of how beautifully intricate and elegant and complex and also how it's not bad. It's adaptive. That's right. For people listening, um, it's safe to assume that every single person listening has processing that could happen of trauma that has happened that if did their life would improve there's no one listening and no one here speaking that is exempt from that um for people who are opening up to this um and were actively curious and beginning to do something about it where does your intuition go about what to begin to talk about well so we've set the stage with some pretty pretty intellectual conversation right and and very simplistically this thing that we're pointing to with we can use so many different words to talk about it but the thing that prevents us um the the in the inhibition of experience right that's the thing that the mystics point to as the thing, but the barrier between us and nirvana, us and enlightenment, us and awareness, us and awakening, it prevents us from being in our body and living in the present moment because living in the present moment is too hard. It's too overwhelming, right? So we don't want to go right to the core of it. There's not a quick fix. It's a gradual progression towards awareness of ourselves and over time, that stimulates an awakening inside of ourselves, an ability to be present in the moment. This, the mystics from every culture around the planet point to one thing in my mind. I condense it to one thing. And it's this, the kingdom of heaven as it's referred to in Christianity or nirvana, this state of eternity, um, the only place you find that is in the present moment. The present moment never ends. 
It is infinity. To access that, to quote Christianity again, you know, the kingdom of heaven is right, is on earth, right? This, but men do not have the eyes to see it. But men do not have the eyes to see I it. I love Correct. that quote. Right? So what does it mean to be man in that quote? What does it mean to have the fall from seeing? It's, an, it's a lack of awareness of the present moment, it's of the self. It's an inability to be in the present moment because of all that happens on the inside when we slow down and when we do. So to access that point of infinity, we've got to clear the things that get in the way that store over the years. We have to unlearn our patterns of resistance to life. We have to unlearn our patterns of inhibition to, to practice allowing our responses to take shape and to take form inside of us and to be a willing participant in the experience of aliveness. That experience of aliveness includes anger, it includes sadness, it includes joy, it includes happiness, it includes love. Anthony DeMello references a, a quote by a Sufi, and I don't know where the quote actually comes from, but I really love this quote. When the eye is unobstructed, the result is sight. When the ears are unobstructed, the result is hearing. When the nose is unobstructed, the result is smell. When the mouth is unobstructed, the result is taste. When the heart is unobstructed, the result is love. When the mind is unobstructed, the result is wisdom. Right? So our job is not to effort our way anywhere. We're already everywhere we need to be. Our job is to remove the obstructions to what's always present within. And accessing infinity and living in eternity can happen right now on our planet. Like it, it can happen right now for all of us. And the journey there is an interesting one. Right. Right. Because any sort of holding on to or working towards gets in the way of us removing the barrier to our awareness of this present moment within ourselves. And our body is the only conduit that we have to access the felt sense experience of aliveness. And that's the thing that we are unfolding into unobstructing. It's the thing we turn away from most. Our response to something is the thing that we inhibit most. Right? And we're preventing our own aliveness. And we're, we're continuing our own suffering. Right? And the way that I define suffering is a lack of living in the moment. It's, a, it's our inability to be present. And trauma prevents us from being present intelligently because being present was once too much. And when we have a species that continues to further this pattern through the way that it develops itself, most of us are unable to break free from this pattern because it's so embedded in us. It's now an adaptation. And we have good reason to expect danger everywhere around us. 
there's quite a few things that was incredible that brought me into the present moment. And now that I have to speak, there's almost a function of speaking that brings you out of the depth of the present moment when you're not speaking, but we're on a podcast, so I will. <laughs> One of the things that arises is, and this feels like a side note that's more interesting for you and I to talk about that might be a little bit further ahead than what would be best for the audience, but it was what organically arose. So it's what I will speak to first. And it's that there's this really powerful idea that I heard um, from Daniel Schmachtenberger when he was talking about the idea of emergence um, and that emergence is it's, he says it's the one thing in science that it's actually magic, but that scientists believe because they've given a word to it that they've explained it. But it's the <laughs> idea that when two things come together in some type of way that we can't really understand a third thing, emerges that wasn't present when those two things weren't in a synergistic relationship to each other yeah. and that um but that something that has emerged through the evolution of consciousness is this ability to even not be in the present moment that mm -hmm. is something that is in his lens it's this new evolutionary capability that's arisen you know in evolutionary time in just the last blink of an eye and that it is a function of evolution. It is. That, it's an adaptation. That this new skill has come online. That's mm -hmm. something that none of the animals previous in our history have had to contend with. Mm -hmm. And that um, just as a thought experiment, when a new skill comes into a population in an evolutionary process, the first generation of organisms that get that skill are trying to figure out how to use it in a way mm -hmm. that actually gives them the adaptative advantage to propagate the genes. Mm -hmm. And many of them will fail and they'll die. Yeah. But the ones that figure it out will then open up an entire new branch of the evolutionary process. And that this ability to go into the past or to go into the future is this new skill that we've acquired that we haven't figured out how to learn. Mm -hmm. But that um, there's a spiritual... Um, response that has come up to the inadequate use of that skill that would essentially say, and I think he's straw manning here, but um, look at the dog. Do you see the peace that the dog has? Look at the child or the infant. Do you see the peace that the dog or that the infant has? And that they would say, give up the evolutionary gift that's been to bestowed to you of being into the future, of being into the past, mm -hmm. don't use it because it causes suffering. Yeah. His invitation is, or learn how to use it consciously. Yeah. This brings up a really interesting point um, in my mind. If we read Gurdjieff's work, <clears throat> he describes this. There's a distinction between intellect and essence. Essence is natural. It's cultivated by being connected to nature. It requires no mind or no thinking to cultivate. In fact, the people on our planet that we know of that have the greatest strength and essence are those that live in indigenous communities. Intellect. A chronological understanding of our species. Without this, we cannot learn from from ourselves and grow in a direction, right? And, or grow and develop. 
Let's just let's just say it that way, right? We can't grow and develop. So one without the other is imbalanced. It's not, and we see the dysfunction in that in our in our current state of the world. Either way, going one direction hard or the other doesn't serve us. But it's the cultivation of the two essence, awareness, whatever we want to call it, coupled with an understanding of the arc, the historical journey that we've been on as a species of what came before to learn and grow and develop and change going forward. Yeah, the last part that he got to on that, which is in alignment with what you're sharing, is that it is we haven't figured out how to use it. And in the not figuring it out, it's created a tremendous amount of suffering. But if it were figured out, we would become the first aperture of the process of evolution that could consciously join and help steer the process of evolution in such a way that is for the best of this planet. Because, and this is a whole side note that's, that might get us incredibly far away from where we were at previously, but that the way evolution has unfolded on this planet is that the type of programs that are natural to your organism no longer works if the entire planet is covered by this type of organism. It doesn't work if there's no new terrain to go to if you extract the resources from the previous one. It doesn't work if some of the organisms at the fingertips of their organism could launch weapons that could potentially end all organic life on the mm -hmm. planet. And it doesn't work if some of the organisms are as fast as they possibly can trying to create this next species of artificial intelligence that would have the capacity to potentially be an existential threat to organic life. And that it might be a function of the intelligence of the organism we're all evolving out of, which is the planet, to create the pressure that something with thumbs and something with the just right vocal cords to emit sound would begin the process of creating something that is called culture. That cognitive scientists make the argument, makes the argument that that is the pressure that created the cognition that could start to have past and future to essentially help guide the unfolding of biological life on this planet. And that the gateway into even beginning to be able to um, consciously use this superpower of being able to go into the past and being able to go into the future is you have to be able to be in the now at will, by will. Um, mm -hmm. I just had an interesting synchronicity that that's your name and that, that was the strong yeah. word that came through yeah. but can you at will be here now that's right and then mm -hmm. once you can you can then begin to work on the ability of using the superpower of past and future yeah. to in his mind and what resonates with me is become a steward for the evolution of life on this planet yeah. that's what i'm really pointing to and, and that's where i I feel my, my greatest life's mission is something that I won't accomplish in my lifetime, really, but to influence the trajectory of us as a species, to move us in, that, in this direction of uh, adapting subtly a little bit differently so that 
um, we don't destroy ourselves. Same. Right. You know, and an interesting thing that Peter Levine shared about um, memory and past and future that I'll share here with you. And I'm not going to get the quote quite correct, but I'll, I'll summarize it in, in my understanding. Our ability to assess time, like the development of the hippocampus, so to speak, um, spatial it evolved as a, pro, a byproduct of our spatial awareness, but it's more of a, a way for us to track food and to avoid threat. Right. Right. So I have associative responses that trigger in my body when I'm in an area or in an environment that's similar to a previous time when something bad happened that, that instinctively move me away from it. Now that's how most animals or organisms work. There's no cognition to it. There's no active recall memory to it. It's all encoded implicitly in the body, which we have yet because we're standing upright and we're looking forward in the distance. We are now calculating spatially the mm. distance between me and and out there. Interesting. And yeah. me and behind me. So now I have spatial awareness that incorporates almost like time. Wow. Time is this evolutionary byproduct of perception. Of our visual system. Of our visual system. In addition to our perceptual system of wow. assessing, okay, I can now remember memory, actively recall the memory of that bush having fruit that I can eat. So now I store that in an active recall place so that I can come back to it. I was once attacked by a tiger over here and I can associate that now with the shape on the ground and the shapes in that area and the smells. Mm. And I know that I want to avoid that space. All this is, simplistically speaking from an organism standpoint, is an app adaptation that's necessary for our survival as a species for food for you know propagation of the species and for safety and survival now as a result of that adaptation we then become more conscious and self-aware and that consciousness and self-awareness now gives us the ability to question it and to to be curious about it and to to create these fantastical mystical structures of relating with it but underneath all of that it's it's a biological response in my in, in my mind about you know and consciousness is an evolutionary adaptation right take away the need for that kind of spatial orientation and i truly believe that the adaptive response would take away the necessity for that kind of consciousness I have so many things that I want to talk about off of that. And then I'm holding the tension of going back to, okay, people listening who are interested in trying to begin to process trauma, what can we talk about to help them? So as I speak that tension, I'm still going to ask the thing I want to ask Do and it. maybe we'll come back to that. <clears throat> well, and let me say this real quick before you, before you say it. All of this pertains to trauma. Trauma is just a fancy word, you know? It's just it's just a word that we're using currently to reference this thing, but this is a phenomenon that's been occurring yeah. across time, and we have other different cultural right. words that we use for it. So we're still talking about the same thing. But I do feel like we're 
like there are people whose tire is flat on the road and we're up at the top of the mountain talking about how dope the view is. And of course yes. there's more mountains and there's more roads, but there's a part of me that's like, we could go back there, but also I have never seen this before. And I want to ask you what you think <laughs> from seeing that thing. So let's do it with the, let's go help the person with the tire. I just uh, want to grok one more thing that might lead to you grokking a thing. And then we eventually never, but anyways, okay. Um, I resonate so deeply with what feels like the core of like your disposition is like a fundamentally like evolutionarily biological one that um, isn't making just so stories that are comforting, you know, that is the basis of a lot of religions, et cetera. Um, And I share that deeply. So one of the questions that I have for you is, um, do you think, I'm not asking you to justify or try to give reasons why, but just as like a placeholder and then maybe we go help with the tire. But do you think consciousness is an emergent process of biology or um, have you played with the idea that consciousness is the fundamental qualia of reality and then out of consciousness arises matter that eventually gets complex enough where the matter can sense that the consciousness that's embedded in everything is also in it? So it's panpsychism or materialism fundamentally? I would say yes. <clears throat> How dare you, Gurdjieff Jr. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's there's a there's a both and space here, right? So in our world, we define things in black and white or polarizing concepts. And I mean, in order to think. In order to think, right? So there has to be a something out there for me to position another against it, which gives me the ability to reference both, right? The two points. Um, and I, th- I think there's still so much we don't know and we don't understand. So there is this emergent property that is within all things. It's everywhere. And we have many names for it. God, we have um, the universe, we have energy, we have electricity, we have sound, we have vibration. We, we can use so many different names. I mean, there's so many different names of gods and different different qualities that we could give it. But I believe that fundamentally, we're just searching for words to name the thing that all of us recognize. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's this emergent property. We can call it consciousness. And our ability to sense and discuss that is a byproduct of our evolution, mm-hmm. right? Other creatures can't in the way that we do, that we know of, at least, right? Doesn't mean they don't have consciousness. Doesn't mean they're not conscious. Depends on how we define consciousness, right? There's a great book by a guy named, or a person named Julian Jaynes, I think is how you say the name. It's called Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. Yep. Um, I started watching Westworld and there was a quote from that book in the first season. It was like one of the first two or three episodes because they're really exploring that bicameral mind and the voice, the inner voice. I swear that show was built around this book and the philosophy that was presented in this book. And I began reading the book while watching the show. Even though the show is incredibly violent and, um, very visually stimulating and whatnot. It was incredible to accompany these two. But the ideas presented in that about consciousness 
it, well, it's more of questions that are presented. You know, what is it? How do we define it? Do I define it as my ability to perceive myself? Or is it the fundamental energetic signature that runs through all things? Um, and I think it's a, it's a great question I don't have an answer to. But I like living in the question because it gives me freedom to explore and ask more. Um, so yeah, no easy cool. answer to your, to your question. I think it's a both. Yeah. I think we're both. All right. So now it feels like we have sufficiently grokked at the top of the mountaintop. Um, I'm, I'm really feeling into people listening and especially people who feel like they, like I have people who have responded when I talk about trauma in this oscillating and it, it can, it might come from the same person over the course of like two weeks where it's like, thank you so much to speaking to this. I feel so like, this is so incredible to like a couple of days later, who the fuck do you think you are? And you're privileged to be talking about this and you're not talking about this part or this part, or what about this part? And so for people who are really in the grips of the results of unprocessed trauma, or even listening to us talking about just be here and now might be triggering. How can we begin to meet the people listening where they're at to begin the process of, to continue the metaphor to like mm -hmm. put a new wheel back on? Yeah. Well, for one, it's easy for us to talk about this philosophically. It's another thing to live it. It's, it's not easy to step into the belly of the beast. It's not easy to move towards feeling the thing that we don't ever want to feel again. And it's right or appropriate for people to feel enraged, connected, right. sad, overwhelmed, joyful, wanting to point their finger at you and I, wanting to celebrate us. And even listening to us talk about this might bring up a lot. It's not an easy thing to talk about. It's not an easy thing for a lot of us to think about. And the thing that's so important for us to remember is wherever we are on our journey, the only thing we need to do is take the next step. It's not about suddenly arriving in this place where we can be enlightened and sit on the mountaintop, sit in lotus position and disappear into the... That's literally perfection. what I was thinking is Luke Skywalker yeah. at the... That's, that's so funny. Right. That's right. It's not about us being able to do that. It's about us making infinitely tiny steps in the direction of us feeling more connected to ourselves. Yeah. And we can do that by finding support from practitioners who have trained in supporting people to do this. Somatic experiencing and Feldenkrais are two of the most underrated and powerful techniques that I've ever experienced. And I say that not to hype them up. I say that to bring reverence to the potency of the experience that can be had when we work with the body as a component of the transformation. Mm. Because it's real. 
And it's not something to play with as the example that I gave <clears throat> during the beginning of our conversation. I don't share that example lightly. And I'm not proud of that situation having occurred accidentally at my hands through my own ignorance. And I shared it because if there are practitioners listening, and if there are people who are experiencing the complex impact, I want both of you to know going slow is counterintuitive to our culture. And it is the most efficient and effective way for us to get there quickly. Right. We really have to slow the process down. Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Exactly. And peak transformational experiences do not always and very rarely lead to healing unless the right circumstances are in place for that particular person and organism to have the capacity and the safety to be able to make that their way through that experience. Right. But 99.9% of us people are not set up. We, we, we have not had the kind of life and practice to receive that kind of transformation from these experiences. Interesting. Yeah. And most of the time we go through these experiences and, they, and, and we become overwhelmed, but we come back. Why do we come back? Because we need to come back because we're not like the thing's not changing. The thing's not changing because we're having this extreme experience. When we have extreme experiences and cathartic experiences, immediately after, our body dumps hormones, chemicals, dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine. All of these things give us a cascade of feeling really good. So we associate that feeling good with change. That feeling good is relief after an extremely hard working experience but it's not integration and it's not healing. And so we equate that feel good experience with mm. healing. And so we chase the catharsis and we chase the extremes and we chase the intensity, but all we're doing is going through these cycles, intensity, feel good crash, yeah. nothing changes. We got to pause here because you're saying something that I don't think a lot of people might be catching the bigness of it and that the majority of the people listening, even if they're catching it, are not going to allow it to land because That's this right. is blasphemy. It's counter to in, everything in our industry. It's in counter the to spiritual, everything. In, yeah, so in almost all industries. Let me uh, grok this sexy. and try to articulate it because... I have felt this. I don't think I've ever given myself the chance to articulate it. And I agree with you. Um, I can feel that I don't agree to the, uh, I don't agree to the degree of, but I, I'm for sure tracking. And so what I'm hearing is many people who go to the well of psychedelics and one version, this is what I'm transformational hearing. Transformational right. events, right. psychedelics, okay. all kinds of things, catharsis. Yeah. Peak experiences what most people listening in my audience will understand that with will be like intense psychedelics or going to a transformational experience. Yeah. Um, the, the grueling nature of the overwhelm of the hyperstimulated nervous system will create a hormonal response that feels like that thing that you've been chasing your entire life. And to the degree of community or to the degree of how slowly you allow, allow yourself to integrate back into reality, 
that window of, oh my God, this is the thing that I've been seeking might last a couple of weeks at most, maybe a month. And then without the proper container or environment or community, which most of us do not have, uh, you will find yourself very likely back in the just same patterns. I think to steel man this a little bit where I don't agree quite to the intensity is that for a nervous system that had, has never had a peak experience, I think it opens up something that becomes a window through which their daemon or their soul can start to whisper things that they haven't heard before. And maybe there's a 1% increased chance of them doing the right thing here, a 1% decreased chance that it at least opens up something into the system that wasn't awake there prior. But to your point, um, it is often just it's like one graduated level above where you were at in the quote unquote matrix, but it's this new cycle of peak experience, temporary window of relief back to old ways until I find the next peak experience. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I want to, yeah. So I'm not saying don't have peak experiences. I think peak experiences are great. We, we connect to our aliveness in these experiences. It's how we have the experience and the degree of intensity and how much preparation we go through and our capacity to be with the intensity that we create versus the experience itself. I agree on all right? accounts. And setting up the right conditions means that we might be able to integrate that experience. <clears throat> In Peter Levine's book, In an Unspoken Voice, towards the end of the book, he describes the science behind why catharsis is not the answer. Sometimes on the pathway to healing and integration, catharsis may occur because the body's recapitulating that memory, reliving the the memory experience, and the energy systems get activated. And so there's a flooding of this sympathetic charge, and it discharges but not always. Now, because it's happened a couple times and people have had some success, they attempt to stimulate that to happen, thinking that that leads to change and healing and integration. And so what I'm pointing to is that can be a byproduct sometimes. It's not the answer. It's not the solution. And so many methodologies and modalities attempt to stimulate that to happen so they chase that thing and they think that that is the end point, the arrival point. That's going to be the thing. The somatic release is going, to what's, is going to be what heals us. It's not. It's teaching the body that it can do something new and being able to make sense of that new experience when we're fully present in it. Yeah. So if I'm being candid about my misunderstanding about trauma, uh, and this is why I'm not treating people with trauma and that this is your wheelhouse, is that my uh, naive or uh, immature, and I don't mean that in like a self-derogatory way, but almost like a technical way, mm-hmm. is that what does heal acute PTSD mm-hmm. is the somatic release. And I would love to hear how that's not totally correct. And then I would love to hear Let's begin to get into, okay, you now have um, are like slayed one of the biggest misconceptions. I would love for you to start to paint the pathway for yep. what to actually begin to do. 
Absolutely. Yeah. It's hard for most practitioners that I teach this stuff to, to really digest what I just said. Right. I find myself saying it over and over and over again. The science points to the undeniable fact that more often than not, that approach causes harm to the system. The system can't, can't process the experience. So if that release is not the objective, but simply a byproduct sometimes of the journey, what is the objective? A safe, integrative experience of being with oneself and knowing that I can be with the intensity that exists inside of me without leaving, without running, without fighting, or without appeasing the person that's leading me through the experience. This is huge too. I love that you point to that and this could be, yeah. So this happens in social dynamics all the time in transformational events. 100%. The person being processed does the processing that the facilitator is guiding them towards. Almost as a function of the fawning response. It's exactly what it is. Wow. They send them, they cue them with body, breath, and word signals, linguistic signals, that tell them that they're okay to keep going. They're not. They do that because socially- This is making my eyes water, yeah. It's an attempt to survive. Wow. And when we're not trained well as facilitators, those people are reliving their trauma again and again and again and again and again. Wow. It is fucking too much for them. Yo, have you seen the Tony Robbins documentary, I Am yeah. Not Your Guru? Yeah. Uh, do you know the part where he's calling the woman out to call her partner and yeah. break up with him yeah. on the phone in front of everyone? That's the image that comes to mind yeah. startlingly, like startlingly. Yeah. I've had. Um, I've been at experiences. It's so interesting. I had this really powerful experience where I was at a men's event and one of the men was, it it was like his turn to lead. And, you know, we were all of his, we were his brothers and his supporters. Mm -hmm. And you could almost feel that he wasn't winning the room over with his charisma. And Mm -hmm. then he tried to do a technique that was very much like that technique from the Mm -hmm. Tony Robbins thing. And the man who came up, this is super interesting, but the whole thing felt, I'll just tell you the story and then I'll share it and then we'll unpack it. But yeah. the man that the leader brought up was very likely the best um, trauma worker mm-hmm. in the entire group. And it's almost like he, the one who was brought up, purposefully activated his fawning response to give the leader temporarily that big experience to help him win over the entire group. And as I witnessed it, I could feel something happening in me that I couldn't quite articulate. It wasn't until afterwards where it felt like I really wanted to go connect with the person who was brought up. Mm -hmm. And without explicitly saying it, almost saying thank you for choosing to go beyond what was safe for you, Mm -hmm. knowingly to help the person have an experience where they felt like they were a good boy or a big boy and they got to have their experience. So it was the fawning response, but I felt that because he was so well-trained in this area, he, it's like he chose to do it for his brother, which if we went deeper into- That's the intelligence of this though. This is what I'm pointing to, right? So from the outside, it looks like it's intelligent. 
I mean, it's, it's intentional. That is the manipulative nature of our system's desire to survive situations that are stressful. Mm-hmm. So it appears to everyone as though I'm willing, I'm a participant, don't hurt me. Yeah. But it's not usually. It's that it's the innate response. And I don't, I don't know, I wasn't at this situation, so I can't really speak directly to the situation that you're naming. And what's interesting is that it off almost always appears that way. It's like the um, Stockholm syndrome. It's a good example. Yeah. And so I don't want to lose the thread. I want to come back. So the, in the same way that the purpose of sex is not to come, but it's a byproduct that happens if you're fully in the dance of just feeling and being with each other, that uh, in the trauma dance, the focus from a naive practitioner is not to create basically a tremoring response in the Correct. muscles, which was my immature misunderstanding literally half an hour ago, but that it's to, it's to essentially through repetition train or help the person be in a space where they feel safe enough to feel whatever wants to be felt in this present moment fully and that the container is clean enough where they can actually cue off of their authentic signals and not the unconscious signals of the space holder. Mm. And that it's like... And the practitioner is attuned enough to the body of the individual that they can say, let's pause here. I think this might be too much. Check in with your body. How are you? How are you doing inside? What tells you that you can keep going? Instead of keeping going being the objective, instead of crying or laughter or tears or anger being the objective, what the objective is is the individual having a new experience inside their body of themselves. This is revolutionary for me, man. Like literally half an hour ago, I'm seeing how... In the same way, an immature personal trainer will seek to basically get the client on the first session to just completely give up. And then the trainer's like, oh, I did a good job. A naive uh, trauma practitioner, which was literally like, thank God I wasn't working on people. But my understanding for the last year, as of half an hour ago, and I'm seeing the wisdom of what you're saying, is I would have been seeking that. Coaches therapists, massage practitioners, doctors. Everyone in our culture, everyone in the industrialized world is encultured into this. And we we point towards- The thing that I'm seeing that's even bigger is the majority of the people who are in a helping space aren't even aware of what trauma is or how to function with it. They're not aware of the physiology right? either. And then there's the entire first wave of people who think they understand it, which is actually the group that we're talking about. And they're the ones that- like actually might be doing more harm. And I was literally in that group. Again, thank God I wasn't practicing, but that um, that's what we're talking about here. And you're describing the elegance of the like third wave. That's right. So yeah, just please go on. But that's massive for me. Yeah, man. It, I think you did a really good job of describing that, how that, that is. I mean, there's the, most of the world is unaware of what I'm talking about and will disagree completely. And they'll point to science and they'll point to techniques and they'll point to understandings that will say, well, no, I can't believe what he's saying. Like it, it's absolute bullshit. Then there is the wave of people who understand bits of this. And who, are excited by it. Like, oh my yeah. God, yes. They're passionate and they're helping people. 
and they're they're committed to learning and they're they're deep and immersed in the work and and they're going to say i totally get what you're talking about and they don't understand at all the point you just the made. point that i just made and that's because wow it's still not widely permeated yeah. practitioners. We're still new in this the science. Yeah. yeah, the science is not widely adopted in any way. It takes years. I mean, Levine's work pointed to this back in the 70s. Yeah. Um, Stephen Porges's work has been, it's been evolving and, and he's finally getting some traction publicly sharing these things, but it's still in a small subsect of, of culture that this is understood. Look at, I mean, Gabor Mate really points to the relevancy of trauma right now, but we're collectively living through the largest trauma we've lived through as a species collectively at the same time, right? So we have these practitioners that really want to help and they think that what they're doing is helping. And most of the time, they're not. It seems like they are. Mm -hmm. They get the feedback from the individual that it's going well. And the individual comes back because they feel good afterwards for a little while. And oftentimes their life becomes destabilized. Now it depends on the degree of, of, of support and um, capacity that the individual has. You know, if we take an individual that has almost no capacity for self-regulation that is entirely under-resourced, this is no fault of their own, right? It's, right. it's not a judgment, negative judgment about a person at all. It's just under-resourced currently. When I was under-resourced and I was living in a tent walking around barefoot, like I couldn't handle taking care of these things for myself. And if somebody had stuck me in this state, it would have been too much. It would have been overwhelming for me. I would have destabilized and fallen apart completely. And when we take a person that's just barely getting started being in the world or a person that's been in recovery for many years, but has a, a lifetime of stacking of traumatic experiences, and we put them through these transformational experiences and we put them through these psychedelic states, Without the right containment and support, they go back to their life. They fall apart. And their bodies can't sustain the impact of the intensity. And that's really all it is. So I'm feeling called to uh, call out of you like a specific example of how this has worked um, in in this third wave way. Mm. But before I move there, I'd love to share a story that I have of a friend that's actually, a, and that the process or the problem, quote unquote, is alive right now. That feels like it resonates with this. And I would just love to get your like intuitive pointing of where I could just go to go potentially learn more and offer something. But yeah, they had a recently very powerful psychedelic experience. It was very clear that they were completely overwhelmed but the space was incredible and held but like it can't solve you know an existential crisis for you and since that event um there's this thing that is known in like the 5meo space that's called night school Mm. and it's where if the experience is particularly overwhelming you basically begin to uh re-experience the hardest most traumatic part of it whenever you try to sleep Mm -hmm. you don't sleep well and you have really Mm -hmm. overwhelming dreams that person is in quote unquote night school it wasn't from 5meo it was from aya Mm -hmm. but they're earnest they're intelligent they want to look at it and every night they're having basically like sleep paralysis nightmares you know why this happens i can explain it i would love to hear 
state dependent association. That makes complete sense. And, and I'll extrapolate for our listeners here. When I'm in a relaxed psychedelic state that becomes overwhelming, where the chemicals in my body are the same as the chemicals released when I'm getting ready to go to sleep, my neurology becomes linked, what we call coupled. The, the pathways become one almost. So anytime I revisit a state that's similar to the state when I was overwhelmed, like we can see this with anesthesia, somebody going to sleep, they get highly triggered. They can't fall asleep. But until trying to fall asleep, everything seems to be fine. It's that the system was sent into a shock right. that it couldn't process, and now that shock lives on. So every time the system gets close to that physiological state, it reactivates the exact same response. Right. And Aya is almost the exact same as the dream state. If it happened right. in that state, in the sleep cycle she yep. gets to, it's when she, she starts REM sleep. That's right. Um, Which would be the same cascade of hormones and chemicals in the brain, that state-dependent state, state dependent response, terror, fright, sympathetic activation. We can just you know, break it down to that. Wake up, overwhelmed, can't go back to sleep, heart racing, sweaty palms. I'm probably describing part of what they're, this person might 100%. Be. And it's more than one person. And so, so what can be done? What can be done? That person needs to work with an experienced somatic experiencing practitioner to get safe, to, to be able to get close enough to that experience that the body can process it without it being too much again. Yeah, so what my mind's going to is uh, in the space with the somatic experiencing therapist, because that's the psychological state that the uh, overall arousal is coupled with, they would have to be either uh, meditatively relaxed until they drop into that lower state or um, hypnotize. And that's not like a fancy magical word. It's actually a very straightforward process, but um, if no, don't even have to, don't have to do even do those things. Cool. Um, so it, there's an analogy that Peter makes, uh, Peter Levine makes, um, between mixing two chemicals. It's an analogy around the term that he uses called titration, which yep. is a scientific term. Yep. We take these two chemicals, we mix them together really fast, there's an explosion. Mm -hmm. But if I mix them together really slowly by drop, by drop, by drop, at some point, those two chemicals mixing together neutralize and it becomes salt and water, right? But if you mix them together, there's this massive explosion that just rocks the yep. world. So what we want to do, that the body is the same, it responds the same way to this cascade of, of, mm -hmm. of responses inside. So we might remember 10 minutes before. We might remember after. It depends. If after I've been dysregulated and I haven't found a sense of stability inside of myself, I need to have an anchor point of stability that I can remember in my physical body so I can begin to bring stability to my organism, not to my thinking mind. Yeah. Right Before I even begin making sense of this, I need to find some sense of stability in myself or regulation. And then incrementally across time, we move closer and closer to the memory, right? Closer and closer, but just a little bit closer. And then we let the body rest. Heard. And a little bit closer and we let the body rest. And we don't do this all in one session. 
No. We do this across maybe six or 10 or 20 sessions, depending on the capacity of the individual. And the intensity of the experience. And the intensity yeah. of the experience. Exactly. One of the questions that I feel coming up that actually might be uh, challenging and I'm curious what comes up is like, if you had to leave a manual in a war zone for someone who will not have access to another person and all they have is their resource and you wanted to like drop off a manual of first aid, like first, what are the challenges in you of even answering a question like this because of what like, um, and I'll just let you go with that. But uh, if you feel that it's morally and ethically okay to even answer the question, I would love to hear what your answers would be. Mm -hmm. Like, because one of the things I hear is like, fuck you, dude, I can't afford that. Like, like just, mm -hmm. and, but then there's also the very real, like if you're in a situation where you do not have access to another human, but you feel yeah. this happening, what's the like, what is the thing that I can do for me if I'm in crisis mode and mm -hmm. I want to navigate this and I don't have someone? Yeah. Well, first of all, we need these primal responses to function normally inside of a war zone. I don't want to, um, I want to be able to inhibit my responses. I want to be able to prevent my freeze response from occurring so that I can get away from danger. Right? And to clarify, I meant that as a metaphor of yeah. like, they can't get access to an expert, but I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I got you. Well, so first and foremost, we've got to figure out what the cues are inside of our bodies that we're becoming a little bit activated or we still are triggered. Hurt. So I need to become sensory aware and emotionally aware inside myself. And I need to learn the distinction between thoughts, emotions, and sensations. And there is a massive Huge. distinction. Huge. So simply by exploring those, those, those distinctions, I begin to become aware of the moments when I'm triggered. If I can't notice my trigger, I can't stop myself from noticing my trigger. <laughs> so I need to be able to have strategies to turn my attention away from my trigger, away from my body. I need to learn resourcing practices is what we call them um, in the training that I run. Stabilization practices. Like I need to know, well, I mean, a good example of one is wherever, wherever we are right now, as you're listening to this podcast, even as you and I are sitting here right now, <clears throat> look around your space and pick out three to five different objects and notice them. And if you really want to play with this, name them out loud. Like when I look, I, the first thing that catches my attention is the hawk and the owl, that painting that's, that's on the wall here. And it's something about the colors that draw my attention to it. And then the painting on your staircase, which I freaking love, right? And then the red lights catch my attention. And now my neck muscles are engaged. And as my neck muscles are engaged, I notice I took a breath. And my system is regulating in a way. And I take a look around a little further. And I'm using less words now because I'm more present to my environment. Simply bringing my awareness outside of myself into my environment helps the animal, me, notice its environment and assess for safety 
or danger. I don't, I, I'm not thinking about that. And it's important that I'm not thinking about that. Now, if I'm in a war zone, I don't want to do that. Because if my environment's a threat, it's not a resource. All that's going to do is continue to, to trigger the cascade that's happening inside of me, which is appropriate for my circumstances, right? right? Secondarily, we can notice the weight of our bodies where we are. If we're sitting, notice our sit bones. Notice where we make contact with the earth or with whatever we're sitting or standing on. If we're standing, notice our heels. Notice how gravity pulls on us. Can we notice the being pulled? Notice how we push against gravity. Our body resists gravity all day long. Can we notice that? Third, is there somewhere in our body that would like to receive contact from ourself? Mm. I have my hand on my thigh right now. And if I bring my awareness to that place, it feels nice. I notice the warmth of my hand there. And if I really check in with my body, is there somewhere else that wants contact? Maybe put my hand on my neck. And when I do that, I take a deeper breath. So these are things that we can do simply to help our systems to have a little bit more regulation in the moment. But if I'm not aware that I need that additional support inside myself, I can't use that kind of an intervention to support myself. So where we, where we would want to start, if I don't have access to a practitioner, <clears throat> I need to become aware of myself first. I need to recognize that this is something that's happening on the inside. And then take my attention and place it outside of myself if my environment's a safe enough environment for me to do so. Yeah, so if I'm hearing you, you don't have access to someone, first is cultivating the self-awareness to be able to know when you are dysregulated to the point that something needs to be done. Or at all. Heard. Right. And then... Um, having access to at least one set of tools or more for regulating. And you can do meditation on YouTube. There are right. free access points for, for many of us for things like that. Yeah, so for me, um, the thing that comes to mind is like the fundamental beginning point yeah. is Vipassana meditation, which is one of the most uh, ancient and strip down a fluff meditations that you can do that will help you begin to cultivate this thing that no matter what we say, we really can't do it for you. It's something that is an internal unspoken mm -hmm. and it's self-awareness, but learning how to note or to notice, oh, a thought just happened and I feel the back of my neck starting to get hot mm -hmm. or I just had this image of this memory and I mm -hmm. feel my stomach getting tight yep. and it takes practice and time, but yep. that like a free thing that you can start today is to meditate. Mm -hmm. And meditation, if I may real quick, before you say what you were going to say next is more than stopping our mind. Yeah, it's not that. It's not that at all. And there's so many different techniques that we can use. 
most potent of all, can I notice myself? Am I angry? Am I tight? Is there tension? Do I feel tingly? Do I feel soft? Is there roughness in my body? Is there jaggedness in my energy? Is there smoothness? Am I heavy? Am I light? Am I numb? What am I? What's my experience of myself? Yeah. And then secondarily, is there an emotion present? Am I sad? Am I happy? Am I angry? Am I numb? Am I unaware? <laughs> and that's okay too. That's like a great Zen koan. Am I unaware? You know, because mm-hmm. even answer the question would be, you know. <laughs> what am I aware of, right? Yeah. A, lo- a lot of us think that there's a way to get this right with meditation. But really meditation is about sitting with myself and noticing what's here. 100%. Yeah. And it's a, yeah, I don't know if we're talking down to the viewers, articulating it, but it also is the most common misconception in meditation that the goal of meditation is not to stop thinking. That will never happen. The goal of meditation is on one level and actually where the benefit to your brain comes that's been tracked by a bunch of studies is it's the moment you notice that you have been lost in thought and then you non-judgmentally bring it back to whatever you're choosing to focus on. That that act of catching it and bringing it to whatever you want it at, that's the rep. That's the, I just picked up the weight. It's not the not thinking. If you didn't think, you wouldn't be able to do the rep. Right. And so it's... Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that is, that's, that's the removing of the obstruction, the practice of that, the, the barrier to wholeness. And then, so meditation on one level being one of the nodes to move into the fundamental technique of self-awareness. And then there's a beautiful lifelong journey of collecting what are your triggers and how do you know? Mm Because that's going to be a beautifully long, awesome dance where as soon as you think you get it, there's a whole new layer underneath (laughs) it. And it's really a beautiful thing, um, at least in my experience, where like one of the places I enjoy it the most is when I'm driving and I make a movement where I like cut someone off and I didn't realize I cut them off or like I almost made like what felt like an error that could have been an accident. The moment of danger is over and I can track my nervous system in real time because I'm in the car and I'm not trying to do anything else. I feel the huge flush of hormones going through my body that are preparing me for a tiger. I feel my neck and my face like swell and get hot. Mm-hmm. And I feel my brain wanting to start to reach to catastrophizing next thoughts. Yeah. And there's a part of my awareness that's just like, oh, look at the monkey. Yeah. Like just that's like, it. yeah, just that's like. That's it. Catch the thoughts too, because if, if we don't catch it. Right. The catastrophizing was a part of the trigger of the body. Like, and I could feel it wasn't my authentic. Well, it emerges from it. Right. 100%. Right? And, and, and if we don't catch ourselves. We find our way into the thought loop, which continues 100%. to bring up more and more and more activation in our body. Mm-hmm. And so that's where CBT is absolutely vital for us. It's to catch it. 
right before and then reframe it and say, oh, I'm a normal human. I just got really fucking triggered because I needed to make sure that I could protect myself if there was a fucking accident, but there wasn't. I'm letting the thing happen. I don't resist it. I feel it. Maybe I shake my arms or I make a loud noise and then it goes. And just to feel like the car example is the best one because it's the one where I most quickly don't reinforce it and the stimulus is gone, you know, like the car that was just there. But so it's this super incredibly powerful physiological wave Mm -hmm. that at its height, I might be sweating, you know, like just the full, and then it comes down and it takes about like three or four minutes, you know, from beginning to like where it really feels like. And what's interesting is when afterwards, after it comes back down, I actually feel kind of high. Like it actually, and then I totally understand like Mm -hmm. people who are adrenaline junkies, blah, blah, blah. But I've only been able to do that, I think, in like the last like four years. I don't know what the turning point was for me. But um, in the past, when I would have the same level of awareness, knowing that like this wasn't like this wasn't mapping onto the situation, mm-hmm. I would then use it as evidence of me being weak or yeah. me being a bitch right. or me like not being yep. enlightened. Shame. Right. Right. So the inner dialogue of shame, which perpetuates and we're taught that that's it right is it's it's the shame is gone there's right. like a witnessing but before yes. yeah interesting and, and this brings us full back to why all these things yeah. repress and cause so uh, yeah. yeah and that's a big piece of of the work that i do with people is there are a lot of people that focus on the shame in the work and they'll go into the the dialogue about it i don't attend to it in that way and I had a mentor once say, I don't even address shame. That's what she said. My way of addressing it is by looking to the, to, the, to the biological response in the system and the intelligence of that, the usefulness. Like, wow, you're a human. We normalize the thing because it is normal. It's an appropriate response to a perception of a stressful experience. Now, we're not talking about a psychological perception. We're talking about our body perceives threat, so it responds. Of course. Fuck, that's great. Good job. You're a human. No need for judgment. No need for anything other than, yeah, that's what it is. Wow. And when we can remove that, oh, my God, we're not stuck. We're not resisting feeling anymore. Because feeling is appropriate now. Right. Instead of an inappropriate response that we need to resist, that we need to inhibit because of social dynamics and losing our place inside of the the belonging of the tribe. What's super interesting is it's like the mythological motif of the spiritually enlightened is the complete repression of the human emotion. And that's such an interesting like... It's, it's kind of fascinating to me how that has become that. Right. When in fact, if we go deep enough into mystic text, what we learn is that it's not at all that. It's like what's interesting is the mystics that have the type of flavor that I know that you're drawn to, they tend to be the ones that are moved off the history pages. Mm-hmm. You know, like the ones who actually screamed and the ones who actually fucked and yeah. the ones who actually danced yeah. and the one who drank and yeah. lived. It's almost like um, we, because of the overarching zeitgeist of repression, 
yeah. that any of the mystics that touched this truth, um, they're not safe to the repression. Mm-hmm. And so the repressive force, you know, that has been a part of the dominant mm-hmm. story for a long time, like mm-hmm. just pushes them off the history pages. Mm-hmm. Intelligently so. Because the the impulse of the organism is survival. And if if this current structure is associated with survival and the impulse of the organism, it will continue to function in that way until a large enough catharsis, and not in the sense of like big explosive thing, but a large enough um, pooling together of individuals, maybe let's say, or ideas, a big enough idea comes along that it grabs the river and begins to move the direction. We can't move a massive river immediately. And, and you know, what I see for humanity is this is going to take thousands of years to change. And we have to be able to name the problem before we can ever address finding a solution. There's no origin point. We don't need to look for an origin point. That doesn't fucking matter. It's here. It's happening. The thing that we need to do is work collectively together to acknowledge that this is a very real thing and begin looking at how we as a species can band together to find a solution for this. So the brightest minds that exist on our planet can have a place to discuss with this shifting of the river, this changing of the direction of the way that we interact with ourselves and with the world takes place, right? And and it's going to have to happen in all cultures. I can only speak about a subsect of the American culture. I have no idea what it would be like to talk to somebody that lives in Turkey or somebody that lives in Romania or the cultures in India. I know nothing about the cultural... Zeitgeist. Yeah, yeah. The zeitgeist of any of those things. And so we need people in every one of these places that agree that this is the fucking issue. So let's review for a moment. Um, what is the issue that you see and what is the next right step on the multi-generational path? And then I'm going to ask a gear changing question that it will be very interesting. The issue, I mean, it's so complex, but the issue is trauma. The issue is the inhibition of our most primal responses to stress. And the way that that's embedded in our culture and the way that we train ourselves to live, right? It's the issue, the root of our suffering, right? right? The solution is us naming the problem. Heard. Us saying, this is a fucking problem. Heard. So as you were saying that, I had another question that came up that I'm going to ask first, but then I'll do the gear changing question because I really want to see what you think here. But Are you familiar with what the naturalistic fallacy is in evolutionary biology? It's basically uh, um, just because it is doesn't mean it ought. Sure, yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that I'm feeling into is it's like, if someone were to straw man what you're saying, they would say, oh, so we should just do whatever we feel whenever we feel it. And Mm -hmm. uh, sort of like meet the straw manning person on the other side. Um, and then bringing in the naturalistic 
fallacy, which is there's a bunch of shit about evolution that we shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. Like it's evolutionary, ad, it's evolutionarily advantageous to rape and to do genocide. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't do that. Yeah. So um, integrating that like straw man ghost and the naturalistic fallacy, how would you use that to steel man what it is that you're saying that might be misinterpreted? Well, I don't have the solution to how we get there. So I don't think the solution is necessarily that we just process everything because- You're living in the question, but you want people to start asking the right question. Yeah, exactly. We collectively need to ask the question. That's the only way we'll find an answer. Heard. I don't think that the answer is that we, like for a long time, there was this, our thoughts make us. Now it's our emotions make us. So let's process all of our emotions and live emotionally and move through the world through our emotions. Mm. I felt like doing it, so I did it. We see a lot of this culturally coming up right now, right? Oh, it's it's gross sometimes. Oh man, it is. And it's a hard push in the other direction against the mind. But that's a great point. I love that. Right, so it's not about us getting into the catharsis. Yet again, the misconception that I've got to feel it to heal it. We hear this all the time. I got to feel it to heal it. Well, yes and no. Yeah. So it's, it's more a matter of us all coming together with this question in our mind saying, how the fuck do we so, like sort this out? It's yeah. so deeply embedded in everything that we are and all the ways that we are. We need to change the school systems, the political systems, the governance systems. We need to change our cultures. We need to change religion. And this would push, it, it pushes what I'm suggesting pushes against everything that we know as humans. Like it would, it, it topples religion. It topples family dynamics. It topples everything. But if we take that away, we ha- what do we do? What is the answer? And we need to come together with that question in mind and say, yeah. how the fuck do we find the answer to this? Because it's so deeply ingrained in us that we're not going to change it simply by having the right. idea. What I love is the idea of like a revolutionary leader who is not leading with an assertion, but is leading with a question, you know, like, uh, the only example we, re- we really have of that that I'm aware of is Socrates. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure that that's mm-hmm. probably my ethnocentricity keeping me ignorant of beautiful cultures and I have no <laughs> idea who their mythical heroes are. But hey, it's okay. You're a white man. You can right. have a person that you associate that looks like yourself. 100%. And I love that idea of like living in the question and leading with the question. And um, so the gear changes with your lens how do you process and make sense of what is happening in our culture and in Western culture politically slash in response to COVID? And um, I have a very simple answer. It's people are terrified of a threat that they can't quantify. And they're responding exactly the way a person who's terrified of a threat they can't quantify. And what I would offer there is specifically a type of person raised in the type of culture whose zeitgeist about health is the fallacy of the magical bullet. And I want to be really clear. I'm not anti-vaccine and I'm not pro-vaccine to the way that it's talked about in the media. But in my independent research into the development of psychiatric meds that I was doing for a book last year, Mm -hmm. or actually two years ago before COVID started, there was, you know, like I'm big on myths and I'll track myths. And the first scientific study that was produced that led to the first vaccine ever mm-hmm. um, 
one of it, I forget the man's name, but I believe he was German, and uh, it was the first time the phrase "magic bullet." Mm-hmm. And it was the proof of concept that you could go into um, a piece of tissue if you had the right chemical structure and only change a certain type of chemical yeah. and not fuck with anything else in the organism. And it led to the way of like the first wave of vaccines that um, if you look at classical history and not like I have conspiratorial friends and I don't want to use that word dismissively, but I have friends who say that like no vaccine ever created has ever worked. And I don't understand how they can say that. But um, the emergence of the first major vaccine was a huge player in World War I that kept our soldiers from dying of infection Mm -hmm. inside of trenches. Uh, But maybe I'm a sheep and I don't understand, but Mm -hmm. that's my understanding. But that, so that paper was the first scientific like um, insight that led to the creation of vaccines. And then it's actually in, in trying to create new vaccines that we got our first wave of antidepressants, our mm-hmm. first wave of antipsychotics and our first wave of uh, anti-anxiety meds. And there's a really interesting history of that. Mm. But it, it started with this idea or this myth of the magic bullet. And I was like, where... I was curious where that phrase came from. Mm. And so I did some research and there's a German folklore called Freischutz. Mm. And I might not be pronouncing that right, but there's this marksman who is trying to win the love of a princess. And so he's trying to, you know, win at this marksman competition that this court is holding. He loses and he goes off into the woods forlorn and he casts a prayer to the, you know, knight saying, I'll do anything to be able to win her heart. Mm-hmm. And a man comes forward and gives him, uh, or gives him a deal and says, I'll give you these six magical arrows mm. and they will always hit their mark, but I get to control where the last arrow lands. Do you accept? And he was like, yes. So he grabs his arrows. He goes to the next um, competition. Bullseye wins the heart of the beloved. But he continues to go to more events because he's got these magical arrows and he wants to increase his fame. He gets to the last arrow at the last event, releases it. It pierces her heart and kills her. Yeah. And you know the moral of the story, the moral of the myth of the magic bullet is actually uh, it kills the thing that you were seeking. And my personal assessment of the zeitgeist of our like health system you, you can make the argument it's either maliciousness or incompetence. I tend towards incompetence. Uh, there's a like an Ackman razor type thing, mm, you know, ascribe yeah, yeah. to incompetence before you go to maliciousness. Yeah. But that growing in just the way that you talked about at the beginning of the podcast, if you grow up in a culture where from the moment you're born, the way that you're taught to think about yourself in a health view is you're a machine, mm-hmm. not an ecosystem. Yeah. And our science is precise enough where we can just swap out parts and you'll be fine. And that a lot of the ways that we've treated you since the moment you were born is we were operating under this myth of the magic bullet. When that culture is terrified and it can't quantify, it's going to reach to the tool that felt like to the adaptive coping pattern that it felt like gave it safety in the past. Yeah. And I think it's the myth of the magic bullet. I love that. I love that. In 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 a an attempt to find perfection, we in fact destroy ourselves. 
And I think it comes down to the fundamental misattribution of the metaphor that explains the human mm. organism. And it's, we're not a car. No, we're not a car. I mean, we're an ecosystem. From my perspective, when I look around at the way that people are, are behaving, whether it be inside a government or just in everyday life, people associate government with this thing that's separate from reality. They have this whole concept for it as if it is a machine of its own. And I think that they forget that it's just a bunch of people. People respond based on their on their biology and their psychology psychology being a part of their biology right people respond the way you know, and ordinary people run the government ordinary people have problems just like everybody else there is no such thing as a non-ordinary person in my mind so like yeah and this is one of the really interesting things that i see in people who um for lack of a better word, are conspiratorial, even though mm -hmm. that word feels dismissive and I don't mean it to be dismissive, but people who have never been a part of a company project onto the company that there's this like uh, superhuman level genius doing yeah. maliciousness. Like it's an organism of its own. Right. And same for government. If yep. people have never been involved in actual government churnings, they yep. can project onto it that's that right. there's this thing that's happening. And one of the things that I talk about with my friends who believe this type of stuff really powerfully is um, every person that I've ever known in my life so far who has gotten to work at one of these companies that we project our worst fears onto, like a pharmaceutical company. Yeah. Like I know someone that worked at one of the biggest ones in the world, knew the CEO personally. He also knows personally the leader of like one of the biggest like uh, agriculture companies that, you know, are doing quote unquote tremendous evil. And I trust this man's assessment of people. And he said that both of the leaders of both of those companies, very normal people. Yeah. And we, the people that I know that are involved in government, yep. I know two. Yep. And one uh, interacted with the UN. That's right. We have a culture of people who don't know how to take care of themselves and they don't know how to be alive. And when, and when we're wandering through the world without the resources necessary to be alive we're cut off from our sense of self we're cut off from our sensing capacity and we respond the way any animal in those conditions would respond and we make rash quick decisions in any way i mean like like it seems really normal to me and almost appropriate given the circumstances at play is it right fuck i don't think it's right not from my perspective like, I think we could definitely do better, 100%. But to get to the doing better, we've got to fundamentally change the way these people operate in the world, the beliefs that they have, the way they care for their bodies, the way that they live in their bodies, in the world, the way that they think. Because the governmental structure isn't a governmental structure. It's an amalgamation of a bunch of humans that share similar habits and beliefs and uh, dogma, structure of living. Yeah. Like it, and as a result of that, they behave in a similar fashion yep. and they ping off of each other and they get that continuous feedback that continues to reaffirm their behaviors with each other. And so when we have enough people that are terrified of this threat, 
whether five or six people spread misinformation or not. And I have no fucking clue whether shit like that happened. I can't speak to it because I don't know, right? Is it possible? Anything's possible. Is it likely? I don't know, man. You know, I tend to default more, like you said, to ignorance rather than some conspiracy thing. But what I can say is that 90 to 95% of the world is terrified of dying right now. And we're sharing that experience. That leads to a heightened allostatic load in the body. When we have that heightened load in the body, our response time is slower or faster. We're we're easily triggered. We respond through heightened emotional states. Our prefrontal cortex is not operating the way it normally would. And so when we look to people's irrational behavior, it's actually quite rational. Right. It's not irrational. And we're fucking up. Mm-hmm. Right? We're not doing things collectively to support ourselves to come into coherence together. And just we're, because it's adaptive doesn't mean that the car isn't headed off a cliff. You know? Exactly. I want to, um, for the sake of time, mm-hmm. uh, what is the message that you would like to leave people with after listening to us talk about all, all of this and really feeling into the, you know, average listener of the podcast, um, what would yeah. be your takeaway message for them? Takeaway message. The thing that I, I find myself saying over and over and over again is healing happens in connection. One, it's a biological imperative. So healing happens in connection. Healing happens across time. And there is no quick fix for the pain that we're experiencing. It's something that we each need to go through on our own and with support from our community. Um, Have hope. Believe in the power of of, uh, humanity and the potential that's within all of us. There's a good book that I think all of your listeners would really well, those of those of you listening who are up for it, there's a book called Summerhill. And we can drop some links in the show notes, the link to the book. And, and there's a, a lecture by Anthony DeMello that I like to recommend as well. Um, but this book tells a story about what happens when we take humans out of their environment, remove the structure, and give them permission to be children specifically. And the guy who wrote the books has this quote, every child has a God in him. Every child has a God in them. It would be appropriate here with my language. Our attempts to mold this child create the devil within. Every child has a God within. It's our attempts to mold these children that create the devil within. Wow. Thank you so much for what you do, man. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And there will be a part three and a part four and a part five and a part six. I feel like LeBron James when he went to Miami. (laughs) Not one, not two, not three. Thank you so much. Thanks, Eric. All right, y'all. Love.